Welcome to another episode of Pod for Good, a podcast where we hear from the change agents making Tulsa, Oklahoma, and the world a more vibrant and inclusive place. I'm your chief philanthropod, Jesse Elrich. And I'm your vice admiral philanthropod, Chris Miller. And today, our guests are Onika and Kojo Asamoah Caesar. Kojo is the Democratic candidate, running to be uh, our representative for District 1 here in Oklahoma for the U.S. House of Representatives. And Onika is the owner and founder of Fulton Street Books and, Co- and Coffee. She also, while, while working for the George Kaiser Family Foundation, also launched the Birth Through Eight strategy for Tulsa. We talked to Onika and Kojo about a lot of things, including how they're building communities through Fulton Books and running for Congress, uh, why sharing stories are, is so important to connecting, and how to evolve this moment of social change into a permanent change. And if you listen very carefully, you will hear our, our guest star, their newborn daughter, Hadassah. Enjoy. Well, we are very excited to have two special guests on the podcast today. We have Onika and Kojo Asamoa Caesar. One of the reasons we wanted to have you both on and not individually, even though you both are doing amazing things individually, is the fact that you are doing it as a married couple who has just had a child. So my first question, our first question is what has it been like both trying to run for Congress, open up a new business, and having a newborn during this pandemic we're in? (laughs) There's not a word that can describe level of challenging. And what I've been saying to people, because oftentimes when that question's asked, we go to the more like technical issues, right? Whether it's time or being on Zooms or spending time with baby. What we're experiencing right now is layered. So there are all the things that are happening, but there's also the the mental and emotional toll, right? We're also experiencing a time where we're in the middle of a pandemic and all of the social ills are still at work. And so we witnessed the murder of George Floyd and the aftermath of all of that. So it's it's a hard question because in um, quote unquote normal times, doing all those three things are difficult and challenging enough, but then you have these other factors that um, are just heavy um, in all of the places. So yeah, yeah and then I'll add having a baby, right? And baby doesn't know or care about any of these things, um, and. She just comes and she brings joy and smiles and poops and peas and those kinds of things. And so it gives perspective. And I'll say she's been a joy in these tumultuous times. So there's that. Listen, Hadassah, it's very important to know your daddy's running for Congress. He's going to be very busy. (laughs) You have to understand that. Um, You know, I am fascinated by trying to run for a public office when you can't meet with large people, with large groups of people in person. What have you found in the last couple of months have been sort of the best uses of connecting with your possible constituents? Yeah. Well, one, thankfully, we announced very early in November um, and was, we're really adamant about going out and meeting people. So that was great. But during this pandemic and stay at home order time, I mean, one, it's just been great to, it was great to kind of take a step back and reflect on right what everything meant a candidate what kind of candidate i wanted to be um and how i wanted to really speak um to people and i came out of this saying i have to truly be authentic and genuine and no code switching no pandering no none of that right like people are looking for someone who has the courage of their convictions and is going to just speak their truth 
And so that has actually been a great thing. And being able to communicate via social media or Zoom when you're not in person, it's that much more important to be kind of honest and genuine and that to come through. But I'll say this, just Zoom meetings are actually great because you can have a lot of them in a day and it cuts out travel time, right? Um, and then you can meet with people from all over the place. So I've had Zooms with folks in you know, San Francisco and Boston and Ghana, right? Um, all over the place. So that has actually been a blessing um, in disguise. So I'm not mad at it other than the fact that we need to get rid of this virus and get rid of Donald Trump. <laughs> uh, the the listeners of this podcast know our feelings towards our current president. <laughs> I was just going to say, so it seems like for both of you, community is a big theme. And it seemed like that was part of the theme for Fulton Books, right? To be more than a bookstore. Can you kind of talk a little bit about what the mission was and what the goal for, for it was? Yeah, so my favorite story to tell that illustrates that point is um, my father used to always say, I have to say, I don't believe in beating children. So let's not take that away from the story. Let's take away the message underneath. But he uh, grew up in the South, Mississippi, way back in the days, 74. And he says if he ever got in trouble at school, like he got beat by three people before he even got home to his parents. And so I think the lesson to take from that was the understanding that that was, he wasn't just, you know, Gertrude Banks's son. He's a son of the community. So anyone kind of felt a sense of responsibility. There was a, a collective responsibility for the children. Those weren't someone else's children or those children or their children down the street. It was these are our children and we all have some responsibility for them. And for a long time in Black communities in the States, the church kind of played that central role. It's like the center of community is where you went for prayer. It's where you went for church. It's also where you went for gossip, where you went for news, where you went for community, where you went for resources if you need them. And that role has kind of deteriorated over time. So when I look around and think about where are the community hubs now, who's playing that role, they're in, in a lot of instances is a void. And you have communities where people don't even know their neighbors. And that to me is unacceptable. Um, so... Uh, in a sense, our mission is part trying to answer a question. Can we build better community via having this space here that seeks to be inclusive, seeks to center the narrative stories um, and lived experiences of Black, Indigenous, people of color? So that's in part in part our mission. How, how can we build better community? How can we become more of a community center and community hub by building relationships and all of those things? How do those same, Koja, how do those same themes impact you and your campaign so far? Yeah, I think me, in this time where we seem so divided and demented and live in this world of alternative realities and alternative facts and all that, and our president wakes up every day and to divide us and pit one group against another, it is incumbent upon a congressional candidate to remind people that brings us together. Like, this is Donald Trump intentionally trying to divide us and Kevin Hearn is intentionally trying to divide us. I have to be intentional about building bridges and trying to bring people together. Um, and so that means I have to listen to people and I have to not just come with what I want to say, but listen to folks and then respond in kind and find those common themes, right? A connection so that um, even if they don't know me or don't live in my part of town, uh, they can find a shared humanity and understand that the things that I'm, I'm advocating for 
will help the people who live in my neighborhood, but it'll also help the people who live in their neighborhood, right? And if a kid in North Tulsa succeeds, that means a kid in East Tulsa can also succeed, and a kid in Wagner County or Bartlesville can also succeed. And so that is what we're trying to do and bring people together across lines of difference and really, truly bridge the divide because that's how we're going to be able to get anything done. Politicians often when running for office mention the fact that there's we agree on more things than we disagree on. And I I still believe that. But at this particular moment, it's really, truly hard to understand that moment. For example, I was listening in on the city council meeting last night about the mask ordinance. And right. I mean, I made the mistake of getting involved with trolls in the comments. That's on me. But the no voicemails, it was so clear that, like you said, we live in divergent realities with people we are neighbors with, who we work with, who we see on occasional Zoom meetings now. And so how do you, both of you actually, because you're both having to deal with populations that may disagree with you, may not want to listen to what you have to say. How do you try to sort of open up conversations with people you disagree with? I can start. I mean, one, I think it begins with knowing that you're not going to be able to persuade everybody, right? You have to have that kind of humility, right? So you don't think, I, I, I'm just going to be able to convince everybody. There are going to be certain folks, no matter what you say, no matter how nicely you say it, and whether you're wearing a suit and tie, like they're just not going to, you know, agree with you or be persuaded. I also believe that as much as I want to come together, the quote that I heard, it says, I'd rather be divided by truth, united in error, right? So unity is not the highest value. Truth is. Um, it's about how can we arrive at truth together. And that is with story, right? It's with our stories. So for me, I'm, I've decided I'm longer going to engage in any what I call Wikipedia debates, right? Where we just read Wikipedia and then debate about what we read. I'm going to tell you my story. Whether we're talking about healthcare or education or justice or environment, I'm going to connect it to a personal story that I have. And then I'm going to listen to your story. So at the end, you, even if you disagree with me, you understand how I arrived at my position. And then we can agree that like, we're not going to agree 100% of the time. You don't even agree 100% of the time with your mom. And you love your mom and she raised you, right? So what makes you think you're going to agree 100% of the time with a politician or an elected official? Um, so when, once we set those ground rules, it gives us a chance right, to move the ball forward from where we are. And you don't let the perfect become the enemy of the good. But if we can move forward, and if I talk to 10 people, right, if I talk to 10 Republicans, and eight of them leave saying, I don't like that guy, I don't, I don't agree with them. But two of them, he's saying, hmm, he made me think about something. Right? I'll give him a second look. I've done my job. All right. It may not feel good in the moment, but it's progress. You're like, I, I don't agree with myself 100% of the time. Onika, was that idea that, that Koja just talked about sort of why Fulton Street Books put together those ally boxes? Man. That was, that was definitely in part the reason why. We found ourselves at a time where people are sitting at home. Black folks have lived this reality since uh, forever in this country. But you had some people who had some time to look around and kind of notice and see what was going on and say, hmm, like this actually seems like maybe it's systemic. Like maybe there's something going on in this country that I may want to learn a bit more about. And so I launched the Ally Box for those folks. Like Kojo said, there are people... You can give them every book in the world and they're never going to understand that 
lot of what we experience in this country is systemic, is intentional, all of those things. And so we launched the Ally Box for folks who were genuinely curious, who genuinely wanted to learn how to become better allies. And, you know, while I say I center um, Black folks in this space, I center Brown folks in this space, it was an opportunity because our, our mission is twofold. It's about building better community. It's also about building literacy, intergenerational literacy. So if we have the opportunity to help support learning of a community that impacts my life, right, that will impact Hadessa as she's growing up in this world, then I wanted to take the opportunity to do so. I also have to say, I often decry the fact that the burden of education providing what I like to call a free public education when it comes to diversity, equity, and inclusion is always on the shoulders of Black folks in this country. But because we were positioned for such a time as this, um, and we had the resources to curate a book a book list, I wanted to be able to, to take advantage of that since we could. Other thing I have to say is books are necessary, they are far from sufficient, right? So it's one thing to read about a thing and to understand it. It's another to use what you've learned to actually get out and take action, right? Whether it's where you live, where you work, where you play, where you pray, any of those things and you're sitting in your job. Um, and that's always the next step. You, you can know the things. It does good to know them if you don't act on them. So I'm, I'm going to ask you both the question we've been asking our last couple guests is, what was different about this particular moment that sort of awoke a certain sense in a certain population of white people that there was a problem they were ignoring? That's a very loaded way of asking that question, but I'm sticking with it. <laughs> I'll say, I think probably starts, I'll, I'll start where it doesn't start, start in the middle. I think the fact that we were in this pandemic, global pandemic that has affected everybody, um, and we're sitting at home, there's no sports, there's no housewives of whatever city, there's not these distractions, and so people are forced to be in a space where you have to reflect. And then you're seeing the news and you're seeing this image that is just clear as day of a police officer literally kneeling on the neck of an unarmed black man who's crying out for his mom. And so I think being in that space, a lot of people got a chance to reflect and think about what was going on. And I want to connect it to the beginning. I think in 2016, you know, November 2016, a lot of white folks were shocked to wake up to find that Donald Trump was president. Black folks were not really shocked. We we, we could see that, you know, happening here. Um, but white folks were shocked, and they realized, oh, crap, like, we're, we've been taking politics for granted. I was right? shocked. Even the, it, I mean, I shouldn't, <laughs> shouldn't have been. And I was like, wow, y'all really went there. Was yeah. But yeah, it was that SNL skit, right, that yeah. um, you yeah. saw, which was the black folks in the skit were like, yeah, you know, and white folks, oh my gosh, this started, I didn't think America was possible, capable of this. But anyway, so I think that began the work of getting people to realize that politics matters and it's not a spectator sport. And if you sit on the sidelines, certain things can happen. Um, and so if you connect it to the George Floyd murder, white women that I hear from in our campaign started to realize, hey, like, my silence is contributing to this violence, right? My negligence is contributing to this world. And I actually don't want this world for my kids. And I want to do something. And I want to be a part of making um, a difference. And so I think that really awakened this sense in people that was already awakened by Trump, but now added the racial component right to it. Um, and then with the Black Lives Matter movement already there to meet that moment, it gave people the opportunity to actually finally get out of the house and go out and, you know, do something. Oh, sorry. No, I think all of that is 
that's down a part of it. And I'm a lover of history, right? So I'm waiting for like the next five years to pass so we can look back and have 2020 vision on the past so I can be able to But I also think that there's something else at play here, which has to do with money and it has to do with the economy, which is where it became very popular to be on the quote unquote right side of history, right? And and people were seeing um, the financial implications of not supporting Black Lives Matter. We've seen this time and time again, when you start to hit the pockets of companies, organizations, business, biz, big business all across the country, that people will begin to take notice and take action. One of the most probably painful moments for me, I, I, I would love to sit down with uh, Kaepernick and just ask him how he feels because to see them finally come out and make a statement where that, it wasn't even a year ago, months ago, everything that happened to him and them refusing to take a stand, it's like, oh, well, now it's more convenient yeah. to be on the right side than it was just that short time ago. And so you're choosing to do this. So there's there's some level of hypocrisy that's tied to um, the, the economics, I think, that also uh, kind of forced people's hand to, to do the right thing. Now that there is some level of a societal shift, right? And for some people, some companies, like you were saying, it almost feels like they're they're doing it because it's more convenient to rather than maybe they really believe, you know, that in the cause of justice. So how do we hold on to this moment and don't let it become a fad that sort of slips away when people stop paying attention? Yeah, I would even push further to like, how do we make this moment evolve into something that's sustainable um, and intentional over time? I'll talk really quickly about one thing that is probably related and then I'll pass it to you. But what's the shaving company? Gillette, mm-hmm. the men's shaving company. Yeah, um, Black men have been shaving, assuming for as long as men have been shaving. Um, and have I'm just I'm just picking on them. I don't know them. Sorry, but when black men launched own companies because Gillette and other companies were refusing to provide the uh, tools that they specifically needed for their hair care, that's when Gillette kind of took notice, right? And so now I notice they have like commercial with black men in them, and they talk about the razors specifically. To basically now they've been like, oh, we're losing some of our dollars because you have these companies that are catering to folks who have been forced to use our products because no one else is catering to them. I'll say the same for Pantene. I only Pantene has the, the brown bottle. Pantene. Women been washing their hair since women been washing their hair, right? Um, long time, there were companies that did not bat an eye about the needs of black women in our specific hair care, right? And then you have black women who go and, and, and are now able to start companies and all of a sudden, Pantene comes out with Pantene brown bottle, right? So there's a little bit of that going on. And the challenge is, how do you pivot? And yes, I want those companies to make sure that they're providing services for everyone who needs them for all of their customer segments. And not just because they stand to lose money because someone else has come along, Right. Um, and then the challenge becomes like, do you support only, do all black women need to go support only the black women? You know, so what's the sustainable middle long term? Because the other thing that I see happening that we don't want to happen, which is why we often have blackout Fridays where you purchase that black owned businesses or blackout Tuesdays where you purchase that black owned businesses is these companies appeasing certain populations, being able to profit off of it, even though they didn't care about these populations three weeks ago. So I'm loving that companies are starting to take notice and do those things, but how do we make sure right, that there's some level of equity as companies are doing that? 
there was an article I, I read recently. I was trying to find it while while you were talking, but it was talking about the difference between a social act and an economic act, and like these companies saying Black Lives Matter is a social act, not an economic act, because they're not actually changing anything about their company, and how mm-hmm. we shouldn't let them off the hook for that. Yeah. Like I'm glad FedEx decided that they were no longer going to sponsor a team named after a slur for indigenous peoples. On the other hand, are they hiring more uh, people of color? Exactly, exactly. As, you know, as managers, yeah. If you pivot and offer a silver service that's now going to collect money, but your board is still all white, right? That's we gotta we gotta you know about those things as well. So what? How do we evolve? How do we use this moment to evolve? How do companies, businesses, organizations, communities, and kind of get to that 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 sweet spot? In the social activism space, I do think yeah, I, I see this and I say it could potentially just be trendy and a moment, but at the very least. I think we're giving people easy entryways into the movement, if you will, right? So it may start off with you just watching the news and feeling some sense of guilt or anger and asking, what should I do? Uh, And then maybe you start Googling, right, these hashtags, unarmed Black folks who've been killed by the police, and you learn more. And like, what what can I do? Oh, there's a protest in Tulsa this weekend. Okay, I'm going to go, right? And then you attend and you meet other people. So like, now you see that you're part of something bigger, right? Then it's like, well, we've been protesting. What do we do next? Okay, let me register to vote. <laughs> so I register to vote. Now let me show up to actually vote. Uh, and, and then now, oh, I see that Greg Robinson is running for mayor, and he's saying things that I think are going to bring about a productive change to our community. Let me donate to his campaign, right? Let me volunteer for his campaign. Let me go knock on doors or tell my neighbors about you. So you're doing these things that slowly get you into the act and cause you to actually, you know, do things. And I think that's how we make a moment last and turn into a movement, right? Literally moving, you're acting, right? And how small the actions are, it gets you into the movement. And so I'm not mad at it. If all you can do is go to a protest, like that's something, right? If all you did is register to vote and vote it, that's something. And hopefully those small acts lead to larger acts. And Kojo, one of the phrases you've used to kind of differentiate yourself from your opponent and maybe some other politicians as well is uh, leaders eat last. Can you kind of explain what that means to you and, and how it applies to what you want to do if you're elected? Yeah, because I think a lot of times leaders will use their excuse. It's not illegal. I didn't do anything illegal, right? But there's legal and then there's ethical, right? Uh, And there's moral courage. And that's what leadership is really about. We didn't elect you and give you the perks of leadership and this platform that you have and this authority that you have to just be like everybody else and follow. And to really be, I think the understanding that we have that we elect you and that we know that, yeah, you're getting the platform, you're getting these perks of leadership, but in times of crises, you are going to stand up for us, right? Um, you're not just going to advocate for yourself because it's very easy because you're in the room where it happens and we're not, right? Um, and so we want to know that that's what character is about, right? Characters is like a statue, right? Statues have character because you know what they're going to be doing even if you're not there, right? You know what they're going to do when the bird comes and poops on, on their head, right? You can trust that. Um, and so, so yeah, anyway, so leaders eat last. 
signifies that sense that I am going to be selfless. I'm going to be a servant leader. I'm going to put others ahead of myself. And so when we, as Congress, pass a stimulus, because we want small businesses like Onika's bookstore and coffee shop, right, to be able to stay afloat, to be able to pay their employees, right, throughout this pandemic, we want the money to make it down to them. We don't want our leaders who are in the room to go to the front of the line and collect $2 million, right? And then the money runs out and now black, brown, marginalized communities don't have access to that, right? So so the thing Kevin Hearn should have done is to say, well, I have access to this money. I can go eat first. I am not going to eat first. I am going to make sure the money gets down to the people. And at the end, if there's some food left, then I will eat, right? And if there's no food left, I am a multi-millionaire. I have money. I have access to banks and loans that I can get on my own right? um, and help my employees if that's the case. So, And it's one of those things where I didn't think we had to start asking our leaders for that thing, right? That was something they were supposed to want to do already. Right. And as I still wait for my PPP loan, uh, <laughs> trying to help a small podcast production company here in Tulsa, Oklahoma government. If you're listening, um, <laughs> it's, it's not their fault. Banks keep denying me, but anyway, <laughs> no, that's, I mean, honestly, that's the sentiment you want from your, your public leaders, right? They are there to act and vote and research for you. You elected them to make those decisions because you are in our re- Republic slash democratic system. That's the role especially congressmen are supposed to play. Literally, that's in your title, representative, right? Mm-hmm. Well, I just, I think that I like it, Koja, that you were talking about how you can, you will tie back to stories. And just earlier today, I read, you had posted a little bit about your, your life story. And just reading that, I could kind of, thinking back, I can see, okay, this part, I can see how it can connect to education funding or healthcare or anything else. What about your life story kind of prepared you for those type of conversations? Yeah, I think it starts off with thinking that when you put yourself forward to do something like run for office, right? There's going to be a lot of naysayers. There's going to be a lot of people who say, you're not experienced enough. Oh, you, you, you're going to adapt yourself. Maybe I'm not smart enough. Maybe I didn't go to the, the right schools, whatever. I don't have the right pedigree. And then you start to realize, man, like these jokers don't know what they're talking about. And they're no better than me or smarter than me. But what's truly important in a democracy are the people, right? It's it's the people. And it is being able to have conversations and persuade. And I found that the best way and the way that connects most is through story. And so how do you connect your story to the policy stances you have and the issues of the day? And actually, to um, Jesse's point, that's why you ran in the first place, right? You were citizens like everybody else, and you saw these things happening. They happened in your life, and they were happening in other people's lives, and you were compelled to step up to try to do something about it, right? So as a teacher in a kindergarten classroom that is in a state where we're 49th in the nation in education funding, right, and we're 48th in teacher pay, we're losing all our best teachers or the teacher down the hall from me has to work at Walmart on the weekends because she has three kids of her own and she has to make ends meet, right? It's like, yo, we need to be able to fund education. Or the fact that my mom had to send me back to Ghana at the age of two to live with my auntie and my grandma because she couldn't afford childcare. 
all right, or find quality childcare. She literally had to send me back. And I lived there till I was 10. So I can identify with other mothers who have to decide between going to work and finding childcare or leaving kids or grandma, right? All those things. Or when it comes to healthcare, my mom, once you're at age 23, one after the American dream, working hard, two jobs, taking community college classes, you get away from a degree in clinical technology at the age of 39, she starts a stroke. And why not? The years of hard work and stress will catch up to you, right? Oh, you get, end up in the hospital, you're there for four months, you can't afford the bills, so you go bankrupt, all right? And it's not just her. Medical bills are the number one cause of bankruptcy in America. People not being able to afford medical bills, right? So in the wealthiest nation on earth, where we encourage people to work hard to pursue their dreams, you can go bankrupt just because you get sick and you can't afford Care, all right. So that's a story that's personal and resonates. And then you find out a lot of other people. I had this lady and I think it was Bartlesville tell me that, you know, her husband, she got sick, then her husband got sick. And ultimately, there was so much stress in their household and their, in their marriage. And it wasn't because of stress due to their sickness. It was the stress due to the medical bills and dealing with insurance companies. That blew my mind. All right. That's crazy. Um, yeah, so these stories, so when you share your story, it connects with the issues and then it helps others to connect their own stories to the issues and realize that, wow, we can actually do something to change this. I'm not just a bad person because I'm going through this or I'm just lazy or I made the wrong decisions. There are people in leadership positions who are making decisions that affect my life and these issues. And we can actually make different decisions that will get us different outcomes for our lives, right? Um, and so that's what I found. I have to get people to see, like, you're going through something and you're not connecting it to politics or your elected leaders, but it is directly connected. Right? And Kevin Hearn can actually do something about this, right? Um, so, so that's the power of story and connecting my story to the issues and allowing other people to do the same. Speaking of the power of stories, Onika, running a bookstore, a a non-chained independent bookstore, I imagine gives you a little more freedom about what books you want to feature. What is it that your customers see when they first walk in? How have you sort of thought about how you wanted customers to interact with stories as they walk into your store? Yeah, Fulton Street, I like to say, is an accumulation of stories. The existence of Fulton Street is about stories that have been told, stories that are my life experience. One of the things I'm looking most forward to or four to the most, I said four to the most mothering y'all. I'm operating on a little bit of sleep. Um, it's all right. The human library. So we're situated physically right in the Heights neighborhood or what's formerly known as the Brady Heights neighborhood, named after Tate Brady, a known Klansman. Um, and the neighborhood is gentrifying. Um, and I've heard some people say like, this is the greatest example of accidental gentrification or whether it's intentional or not, the neighborhood is gentrifying. And... One of the things that is terrifying about gentrification is the fact that people, brown people, indigenous people, we pay for that quote-unquote progress with our livelihoods and often our lives. I always tell, because I love to tell stories, is I'm driving home and um, I'm right around the corner from my house and I see this young black boy booking it down the street, arms swinging, running down the street. And as someone who grew up in the black community, the first part that came to the first thing that came to my mind was 
street lights are about to be on. So he's got to get home, right? Or else he's about to get in trouble. Because I remember as a child, everyone's playing on the street. It's all good. Street lights come on, everybody scatters, right? Because <laughs> that's, that's the signal you get your tail in the house. Um, but that's the first thought that came to mind. The next thing that came to my mind was, how would other people view this? Right? And I know the answer. And I know the answer for many different reasons. Oftentimes, we see the neighborhood has a Facebook page and it's improved a lot. But at its genesis, a lot of what you would see is suspicious black man walking down the street. The reason he's suspicious, there's a black man walking down the street in probably his own neighborhood and you gentrify or now see this as suspicious because you're not used to the culture. You're not used to being around black people, just being black people and living their lives. Um, and so now all of a sudden it's suspicious. Um, and we know that this often results in the phone calls, right? Phone calls to police or you have people who take it upon themselves to try to be neighborhood security. Um, so we pay for it with our livelihoods and then later on often our lives. Um, and so one of the things that I'm hoping we can do um, it's not an answer, it's not a solution, but it's something, is uh, called the Human Library. Um, and the Human Library is a, you know, an international program, but what it does is the idea is you check out, um, instead of a book, you check out a person, and it goes back to telling stories. It's harder to other someone when you sat down, you've heard their story, you've looked them in the eye, and now you have a reference point when um, talking about understanding that identity that maybe you didn't have before. Right? A lot of people who are spewing this hateful language about um, immigrants and who they are and what they come to this country to do. They live in a bubble and, and don't know anyone who is an immigrant, don't have people in their family who are immigrants, those things. But it's harder to tell those stories and those lives and, and, and have those narratives when you've sat down and heard from someone. And so we're hoping to use that as an opportunity to get people across the table from folks who share different identities. Whether it's someone who has been formerly incarcerated, um, someone who has been formerly a ward of the court or in foster range of identities for people to just people's stories. And I'm hoping that that's a way that at least within this neighborhood as a start, we can start to build those bridges across lines. Of that's one of the reasons I've always enjoyed podcasts. And the one of the reasons Chris and I started this one was I always saw in my own life that if someone could hear a personal story about something, they would end up caring a little bit more about it or almost matching the, the level of care the person who they're listening to is at. So if I could get people on the podcast who were talking about homelessness or uh, systemic racism or hunger or public education, that would force people to hear those stories and then close whatever empathy gap existed in their universe. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Exactly. And 70%, at least 70% of the books on our shelves are written by or featuring Black Indigenous people of color. Um, so people walk in, and if they're acquainted to walking into a Barnes and Noble, this is a culture shock in the world of you know books for them um, to see completely different stories and narratives being centered here. So you don't have like, James Patterson's most recent novel at the very front <laughs> of your store. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh. Koja, there's a lot of we'll say historical attributes that have been attached to your campaign and and your primary win. Right. First, yeah. first, a uh, lot of things. So do you feel like an extra sort of weight of history on this campaign or do you just let that slide off and focus on your campaign? The extent that I'm reminded of it. So being the first Ghanaian American to end a major party nomination for Congress, right, has sparked great enthusiasm and excitement back home in Ghana 
uh, and also within Ghanaian American communities around the United States. So I've been inundated with messages, right, um, and media inquiries. So that has been pleasantly surprising and also, you know, it's given me the sense that I am indeed doing something bigger than myself, right, and that people are inspired by what I'm doing. But I'll say largely I let that roll off because me to even run begin with as a black guy in Oklahoma, the Democrat, and the reddest of red states, right? In the state, the only state where Barack Obama did not win a single county in both 08 and 12 elections, right? Already, and then no Democrat has won this seat in my lifetime, in 34 years. So I already kind of knew that going into this, and I decided to do it anyway, and do it because I actually saw a credible path to victory. So, um, yeah, so whether it's historic or not doesn't help me get votes, actually, on a day-to-day basis. <laughs> help me talk to people, right, and convince them to vote for me. I have to get them to see that if I win, it's going to be about change for their lives and their families, right? But I do think, uh, and also the way I approach these superlatives is it's 2020, right? We shouldn't have all these firsts in 2020, Oh, right. So, yeah. So I'll take it if it inspires other people to go for it and to say, I'm not going to disqualify myself in whatever endeavor I'm going after because nobody has done it before me. But but that's kind of where it ends for me. I was just going to say, did you bring Hadassah with you to campaign events and just like hold her in front of people until they, yeah, they settle well, down? She came April 10th. So it was after kind of the pandemic had hit. So my last in-person fundraiser event was like Mar- March 23rd, I think it was, or earlier. But anyway, but she, I think I posted a picture today in my IG story, and I said, Kadessa has set the on record for the most Zoom calls you know, particip- participated in before we've been 14 weeks old, right? Um, <laughs> she has been in many Zoom calls. Most of the time, she's in my arms asleep, right? And so, yeah, so she's all going into her subconscious, right? So she's hearing all these conversations and she's a part of it. So one day we're going to be able to tell her the stories. So, yeah, it's exciting. <laughs> I, I can see the children's book about you running for Congress and getting it that can then be sold in phone books that the Hadassah can then read. So, all right, all right, all right. So we'll write it in Hadassah's oh. voice. There you go. So we one of our recent interviews was somebody you referenced earlier, Greg Robinson, and he had some very nice things to say about you. And one of the things that he talked about was just kind of similar to what you said, finding that, you know, he just had to run because he said there was nobody else, but also because he just felt like there were things that he needed to change locally. So what are the things for you that you really want to change? What are kind of your big focus items? Beyond just what I told you guys earlier about selfless leadership versus self-interested leadership and really being for the people in this democracy, I started off asking myself a question, what do the people want? And the answer is the people want an America as good as its promise. And what makes America great is that we actually put on paper these high aspirations and ideals that never fully been true, but at least we wrote them down. So every generation has a shot to try to make them as true as possible. And 
engage in this project of perfecting our union. And so my platform is based on answering that question. How do we build an America as good as it's promised? And that is expanding opportunity to more and more people rather than restricting it. Um, and so the main, the four main categories are education and opportunity, health and economic security, justice and equity, and then environment and infrastructure, right? And under those, I have a whole lot of stances like increasing funding for education, paying our teachers, right, what they're worth, with student loan debt relief, right, and health care, universal health care access, raising a minimum wage to a living wage, right, and justice and equity, ending our failed war on drugs, right, stop over-policing black and brown communities, let's legalize marijuana so we don't use it as an excuse to imprison black and brown bodies, right, while it's legal in other states, right, let's acknowledge our past, apologize for the harm we've inflicted on marginalized communities and make atonement so that we can all move forward together as one nation, right? And then let's rethink our, you know, energy sources so we can protect our environment and bequeath an inhabitable planet to the next generation. Like So common sense things, right, that end up actually building communities of opportunity. And that's what it's about. It's not quality of outcome. It's equality of opportunity. That's what America's been about. Nobody's asking for a handout. We're asking for a hand up. Right? And matter of fact, poor people are the hardest working people in America because it is difficult to be poor. Amen. Right. Um, and so, so that's the message. And that message is resonating, right? Across lines of difference. Right. And you have to try really hard to be mad at that message or reject that message. Right. And people have tried and, and they'll call you a far left socialist. Or if you say anything that remotely benefits black people, then you're the candidate just racist and just wants to help black people, right? But nothing that I just said only helps one group of people. Right? It helps all of us. And But we have to do it and we have to continue to come back each and every day and not let the bozos get you down, right? Because uh, that's what they want to do. But there are more people who it's resonating with. And I believe that um, people are going to go to the polls in November and are going to be quite frankly surprised at the kind of support that my campaign gets, the kind of support that Greg's campaign gets. I've been I've been called a far left socialist for my entire life now. I want to ask this question. It's probably going to have a long answer, but I'm asking anyway. <laughs> as a representative, as a representative of Congress, you only have so much power to put things into action, right? right. The amount of bills that get introduced that never get voted on or even debated. So how would you use your power as representative to enact change when you're having to do it inside a much larger system? Yeah, no, that's a good point. I always tell people, because when people say, people act like I can solve the world's problems. And I'm like, you know, I'm going to be one of 435 members of Congress, right? <laughs> and in one chamber, right, of Congress. And, you know, we have three branches. So I say, that's why we have to make sure we elect Joseph R. Biden Jr. as president, that we have, we maintain control of the House of Representatives, that we win the Senate, all right? Um, then we can get some things done. But at the same time, just like I told you guys, in order, the way to be most persuasive is to begin by knowing the limitations of your persuasive powers, right? Same thing with being a member of Congress. You have to realize I can't do everything. So where am I going to stake my claim? And so for me, in somebody in Oklahoma, just like you guys, it's education, 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 education to begin with. If I only had one issue to work on, it would be education, right? Because that's where I started. I believe 
it is probably the most important component of creating opportunity. And then after that, I think it's healthcare and criminal justice. So those are the three things. And they're connected, right? Because we are actually in Oklahoma defunding our education system. We're last in education funding, and yet we lead the nation in incarceration, right? So you see how that's connected. And then we just went, what? 2010 was Obamacare, and it's 2020. That's 10 years. So 10 years of rejecting three federal dollars, right, for to expand Medicaid, right? mostly because the people that would benefit were black and brown people, right? So not only are we not educating you know, folks, and then funneling them to prisons. While they're not there, we are denying them health care and their livelihoods. So, so I think I have to like really hone in on that and focus on that. And then if I'm lucky enough to win, what I've recently been told is that the potential for my election to be, for me to be a national figure when it comes to being the first Ghanaian American to ever in Congress. Right, and what that means, right, for uh, the continent of Africa, for the Democratic Party to have such a nominee. And my district can be happy and excited about that, because if you are elected as a national figure, that's more power and a platform that you have to be able to advocate for, you know, your district and your community. And so hopefully I hope to reconnect with a lot of national organizations since our primary victory. And we're exploring being able to use that in service to district right here in Oklahoma. So we're sort of getting close to the end of, of our hour here. So one of the things we always ask are if somebody's listening to this and gets isn't isn't inspired, how can they connect with you? How can they help? Yeah, for for me, visit our website, kojoforcongress.com, K-O-J-O-F-O-R Congress, about our platform, watch videos where I tell you about my story. Um, and my values and what brought me to this point. There uh, are all the social media platforms. So Instagram at Culture for Congress, Twitter at Culture for Congress, um, Facebook, Culture for Congress is our page. Um, and you'll be able to connect with others. On our website, you can also sign up to be a volunteer or add your name to our email list. You can get regular updates and then sign up for a yard sign as well if you want to display proudly in your neighborhood that you support our campaign and you support change. I already have. I already have one of those. Awesome. Thank also, you. also, I asked Greg why he had to make his signs bigger than yours. But uh, <laughs> I'm not even going to go through that. I'm not even going to go through that. You know, um, he's like, well, he's taller, so you know, it's fine. Yeah, I was going to make a short, tall joke. But I said, I'm not even going to go through that. I'll, I'll tell him personally. As a fellow short man, I will make that joke. And so, other than going and buying a book or T-shirt or hat at Fulton Street. How else can they support your store? So follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Fulton Street 918. Um, also, we know we're still in the middle of a pandemic, so there are ways to uh, support from a distance. These are solo shopping hours on Saturdays or sign up for curbside pickup. But yeah, just follow us on, on our social media channels. Great way to support. And by Black. And the show notes for this episode is going to be full of links. So our, our final question is and I, I always feel bad asking incredibly busy people this because the answer is usually nothing. But <laughs> even though one of you is running for Congress, one of you just started a business and you have a newborn, what are you doing during your downtime during this pandemic? Uh, what's your sort of pop culture comfort food, if any? 
Mm, I've really been digging Lifesaver gummies. Not like a huge candy person, but Kojo got them for me while I was pregnant and I've been eating them ever since. So that's definitely a comfort food. And then I would say you have to fight against the idea that we have to be productive all the time. I'm a huge believer in resting, like serious rest, whether it's 15 minutes, closing your eyes or um, taking a nap. There's a IG page I call I follow called the Nap Ministry. But in my downtime, I like I like to have downtime um, just to rejuvenate and refresh. Yeah. And then Onika has picked back up while she's been watching Narcos. Um, binge watching that, and I've kind of been been binge watching Game of Thrones, you know, going back and watching again. Nice, get fans. getting ready for Congress. Were with um, how it ended last season. Um, <laughs> I, I haven't given up on the fight. It was an awesome show, an amazing show. So I'm being reminded why I like it so much. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, so there's been that, and that's pretty much it. There's that, and then that's that, and then work. <laughs> yeah. 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 Always halfway through that question, I'm like, they don't have time to watch TV and stuff. They're doing things. Hey, Malcolm. <laughs> my cat likes to randomly yeah. walk across the, the screen whenever I'm on a podcast. My, my cat's my cat's just sleeping on my desk chair. So. Oh, apparently once wasn't enough for him. Yep. All right. All right. There we go. Okay. Uh, the the true the true stars of the Zoom era, animals. So thank you both so much for joining us today. And I will make sure to list as many things of those things you mentioned as I can in our show notes. And just thank you both for the work you're doing. And it was, Absolutely. It was very enjoyable talking to you both. It's always good to stop and reflect and have a conversation. So thanks for having us on. Really appreciate the time. Definitely. We enjoyed it too. Thank you all for listening to our conversation with Kojo and Anika. To find out more about his run for office or about Fulton Street Books and Coffee, please check out the show notes. We have many many links to different social platforms where you can engage with either one of those two things. Please remember to subscribe to this podcast anywhere podcasts can be found. And I hope you are enjoying Pod for Good being weekly for the next couple weeks as we have some fantastic interviews to bring you. So again, Tulsa and Oklahoma and the world and Australia. Be safe out there. Wash your hands, get it done and wear a mask.